0: Hi, my name is Andy Day. I'm the founder and CEO of Capital A and welcome to M&A Q&A. Today we have Paul Wilmington, CEO of Canvas Worldwide. Paul is a marketing ledge, having founded several agencies including 2020 Media, the Media Kitchen and Naked Communications, as well as serving time at Bozal and leadership positions at the highest levels, both globally in media brand digital communications at holding companies including IPG, Young and Rubicam, WPP and MDC partners and now Canvas World worldwide where he is CEO. This is a joint venture between Innocent Worldwide and Horizon Media, so we've guaranteed some interesting insights into running a global agency at scale. Also, Paul has been party to many acquisitions over the years and is an investor, board member, and advisor for many other comms agencies. He describes himself as a renaissance entrepreneur of the media, advertising, digital marketing, and communications industry. So let's find out exactly what that means. And we'll dig into his insights around the agency world and, of course, get his story on his own exits and acquisitions. Paul, welcome. How are you doing? (laughs) I'm great, Andy. Thank you so much. Thank you for reading my bio. (laughs) (laughs) It's always funny when
1: it's read back to you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's
0: It's been hacked together. So we're going to kick off with a quick background check, as we do every week, Paul. We ask our guests what they're doing here and how they got started in their career. So your, your background is agencies straight out of the door, or did you start somewhere else and then work your way? Yeah, no, uh, absolutely, Andy. Yeah, back in London in the day, I
1: wanted to be a journalist and was interviewing at places like The Guardian. And then suddenly someone said, oh, there's this job, it's in the media. And it was actually working on Rupert Murdoch's business. So the naivety back then, I mean, kids today are like 50 times smarter. I thought, oh, well, if I go and join that ad agency working on Rupert's business, I would actually then, you know, I'd be able to just hop across. (laughs) But I never looked back. It was kind of like, um, yeah, but agencies, but I've also worked on the consultancy side where for many years, I kind of de facto acted like, you know, you got parachuted into client businesses or media businesses. So I've had a bit of variety, but yeah, the main theme has been media creative strategy, you know, across the gamut of uh, of channels.
0: Okay, brilliant. And I'd like to get stuck into those really early days and those those first jobs. So if you can tell us a little bit about, like, you seem to have worked at really, really senior levels in marketing agencies and the advertising industry. So how did you manage to sort of jump into those senior roles so quickly?
1: Well, I was remember a, a CEO early on in my career saying you need gravitas. So I kind of probably practiced in front of the mirror. Instead of practicing my Robert De Niro, I practiced kind of this gravitas. No, actually joking aside. I was very lucky, I think, in London. London was going through that renaissance of the old to the new, earlier than America, actually. Certainly the unbundling of media had happened in various European markets. And that was kind of creating that unbundling of media from the creative agencies earlier. And I happened to be, you know, in the right place at the right time. London was, you know, a hotbed of creativity, but suddenly it became this hotbed of, uh, you know, kind of media and and what what does media mean? And, of course, um, you know, I've, I've name-checked the Murdochs and the Sky TVs and things like that that were happening at that time, kind of revolutionising either the television market or or um, subscription markets and various others. And I think it was just, you know, honestly, probably um, a weenie bit precocious then. And But London was... Kind of the perfect size so i was actually involved in a creative agency business while at the same time running a media agency i mean it seems incongruous that you could do that in america you know with the scale and the size of it but relatively speaking i had a role at a young age as a joint managing director of creative agency while at the same time being kind of president and ceo of what we'd unbundled this media enterprise. But then obviously media suddenly started getting a lot of this oxygen in it. You know, clients were suddenly saying, well, I need to centralize my media. A lot of it was the aggregation of media. And so obviously suddenly that boat was sailing, but suddenly that boat, instead of being a a large ocean liner, it had these huge turbocharged engines on the back of it and it kind of sped off. And yeah, so that was fun and the connection with America. So this was a, a hot creative agency. and um, There were many Delaney's in the ad business running creative agency, they were all creatives. And our, our agency actually had two Delaney's. Everyone else had one, we had two. And they're dear friends of mine, um, Barry and Greg Delaney. And um, so I love the creative side. So I think it always gave me this duality of appreciating, and maybe we'll come back to this later in the discussion, I think actually almost X decades later, I feel like the reintegration of the medium and the message, you know, the point of contact, the context, and the content is gonna come back, you know, never before. You know, has, has media atomized. But at that time, it was a little simpler. And anyway, that agency was very hot creatively. But we created a media enterprise that suddenly got a lot of oxygen. And uh, I, I think, um, before I hand back to you, we also had interest from some of the big American networks. And one of them came and acquired us. And um, of course, We had some lovely, uh, we had the Halifax Building Society, we had BT, British Telecom. We had um, a whole ton of kind of UK British clients, but suddenly we got American Airlines, Chrysler. And lo and behold, at a young age, there I am jumping on airplanes, Coming to New York, going into Detroit, you know, Merrill Lynch was a huge client and things like that. So that gave me—I'd loved America, but suddenly, you know, this wide-eyed kid walking up, uh, you know, well, actually, it wasn't Madison Avenue. The agency was famous for being the toy department store in big. If you remember the big Tom Hanks movie, yeah, course, yeah. that was an ad agency, and it was a kind of loft-like. It's next department store, and of course, you know, wide-eyed. Um, you know, uh, well, I was I wasn't a kid, but I kind of considered myself a kid in the, in the uh, you know in the in the in the in the brace-wearing um, big American agency ha- halls. But anyway, that then gave me my proper business entree to america and i kind of never looked back i mean i was actually still in the uk but i'll, I'll hand back to you because otherwise but that was that was a lot of the fun in those days back in soho i live in soho new york but in the old days it was Soho. you know london was where the agencies all were yeah
0: so was this in the days of concord We we doing a lot of air miles on concord well
1: in, that was in in my one hour days actually there's a funny story uh, we were at Y&R, and we were looking to acquire um, a big media independent that was publicly traded out of London, actually. And we were to and fro-ing. The story's quite complex, but I'll simplify it. Essentially, we were one of the suitors, and we were flying a lot to London. And I, I, at that time, had a very young... So we were living in New York, my wife and I, and I had a very young daughter. She was a baby. And I do remember, you know, doing those classics. You're doing your diligence. You're doing a negotiation. You're flying. but are just flying, you know, normal BA or whatever, United Airlines or, or whatever it was. But I had so many air miles, I started getting the upgrades. And you'd classically end up there. Sir, so would you, you know, there's an earlier flight and it'll only take three and a half hours. Would you like to, you know, they didn't even call it an upgrade. I go, of course I would. So actually the, the funny story was, but I do remember once where, the CEO of a one said, I'm going to stay the weekend. We, we we had, you know, a Friday night meeting, and it meant that we we had to resume on the Monday morning. And I went, I've got a young little baby at home, my poor wife, you know, like weeks old. So I flew back and then flew back out again, I just remember. And I, I luckily, I think, got Concord. But I never paid, I will tell you, or or at least... I wasn't one of those people that had the expense account and was allowed to use Concorde. It was only where they would, you know, the British Airways people would deem, you know... Um, yeah, and and I, and I always remember it was really funny because I think Martin Sorrell, who I think has been a guest on your... Martin actually had his designated seat on Concorde. I think it was, like, 1A. And, of course, like Paul Wilmington had, like, 20E, <laughs> but, but it was all the same. It was all the same. It was exactly the same seat, except, you know, Martin could get on and off the plane quicker than anyone else. Yeah.
0: Oh, so the, the good old days, basically. And I mean, so when you're at Y&R, obviously you had a really senior role there, but you'd already founded your own business previously, and you'd, you'd run an agency for four years that you'd founded. So you kind of describe yourself as an entrepreneur and an entrepreneur. And you founded a, a load of other agencies as well, actually. But when you're in an agency like that, I mean, a really great agency, a sort of legendary agency, and you've got a senior role, why would you then go and leave and, and found your own business? What What is it that would have led yeah, you to I, doing that? I had that
1: itch to scratch. I think I had the corporate itch to scratch. And that's that period where you know, the best descriptor would be an entrepreneur within a very large corporation. And I think it was because of the unbundling. I, I, I think that what I was hired was because I had had already a track record of unbundling in the UK, in, in Europe and across multiple European markets, setting up and establishing what it means to run a a separate and distinct business unit, as opposed to being a department. You know, America was really all of the disciplines reported up to one CEO, but they were all departments, you know, as opposed to independent businesses. y was unbelievable because it was Y&R Inc. And within Inc., they had this philosophy called the whole egg. So Ed Ney, who'd been a previous CEO, bought one exquisitely... Best-in-class agency against each discipline. So, under WineR Inc., there was WineR Advertising. So, to distinguish, you know, although they carried the same name, one was a holding company and the, and one was the agency. Burson-Marsteller, we all know, obviously, a big public relations group. Wonderman, which is now Wonderman Thompson, was an amazing below-the-line direct marketing, below-the-line agency. Landor, one of the greatest brand consultancies, brand identity and design agencies, and a few other agencies. But you can imagine one of each, but what they didn't have was they didn't have the media enterprise. So the media was unbundled out of Y&R. So what I essentially went in to do was to create the rules of engagement internally, fight with finance directors over the attribution of the revenue you know, what should be, you know, you had one P&L, but you needed to then split the P&L because you were literally taking 30%, 35% of the staff, but maybe 35, 40% of the revenue and create these, you know, these new entities. So that was the entrepreneurship. It, it, it taught me an immense amount. It taught me a lot about sponsorship, about, you know, sometimes you're only as good as the vision and support you might have from a a visionary CEO. Um, You know, it taught me about influence versus control. You know, if you're a founder, you can feel, you know, I mean, you may not feel in control, but you, you can control your own destiny to the degree that it's all yours. You know, it's my money and it's my neck on the line, and I have to pay the bills next week. Um, whereas in a corporation, I was obviously doing it in a different way. I was creating a p that was gonna be my PL, but I was actually then working within the corridors of influence. How do I influence this? You know, how do I, influence that while at the same time going and pitching for new business, but the whole egg was a great idea because it was it was the it, the itch to scratch I had was both the entrepreneurship the entrepreneurship, and it really taught me a lot. We did, for example, I got and this is before we went public. Actually, we we this was the road also to YNR Inc.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: being publicly listed. It was it was a private enterprise. They brought Hellman and Friedman in, which you might know, a great San Francisco bank. They helped, so they diluted a bit to clean up the balance sheet, clean out basically a lot of the um, legacy, you know, elements of the business in order to really have a path to going public. And this is all before... Martin bought Weimar. But it was a kind of fascinating period, because that was also happening. There was obviously all of that um, context. And then there was the, the public offering, which was um, very successful um, in its day. Um, and then obviously after that, Martin, you know, swooped in and acquired the business. So really the segue then was, why did I then go why did I leave the corporate environment Well? There was an event, and the event was then ultimately Martin, WPP, buying YNR, which at the time was the largest acquisition in marketing services. Obviously, since then, we've obviously seen Dentsu buying Aegis, which, by the way, is still the single largest acquisition of a holding company, but we've seen you know, the Axiom acquisitions and various others. But in its day, I think it was around 3000000000 billion-ish, Um, And it it created the event and I was lucky enough to have benefited from that event. And I thought, you know, do, and, and really it was a life, it was a entrepreneurial itch aligned to a life stage decision. Going back to my young family, I'd been traveling all over the world. I mean, literally, I was on a plane, trains and automobiles, um, you know, either sitting on a thing called the Superboard, because one, I had a joint venture with Dentsu, so I was flying to Tokyo every quarter. I was chairman of the Australasia group, media Group, so I'd have to go there, you know, and these things, these distances are mind-boggling. I was gone for, you know, 10, 12 days at a time, and I don't need to tell, uh, you know... And it was, it was, it was, and I realized actually what I really loved was the craft. And what I was doing was putting fires out, literally setting companies out, (laughs) you know, running board agendas. Uh, And I was still very young and I loved the craft on it. But the other thing I did was I'm sitting in New York, one of the best and biggest media markets in the world. And ironically, I'm in Brazil, or I'm in London, or I'm in Tokyo. And and, uh, although it sounds glamorous, I said, fuck it, I'm gonna use the money that Martin, um, you know, was, was was lovely enough to deposit in my bank account. And, um, and there's lots of funny stories about that as well, because I had a really good relationship with Martin, but um, I, I used it to then set up the Media Kitchen. So it was, it, which was a domestic media offering, and it allowed me to be based In America. So obviously, America is a big place. Of course, you'd fly around America, you know, having clients all over, but it was a very different scenario. And and really, that's when I was able to dig deeper into American media, American marketing, and the American ecosystem, um, as opposed to being, let's say, a globalist out of London, out of New York. Does that help? Yeah.
0: yeah there's, so that's... Well, there's, t- there's tons to dig into there. But one thing I did I... want to ask you is, so a lot of our audience will be CEOs of their own companies that they started up. But do you suggest that that would be a good itch to scratch for others who probably don't really see themselves in corporate roles at the moment? Could they exit their business into a larger company and then enjoy it afterwards? Because a lot of agency owners... Talk about how bad it is to be acquired, and it can be—you know—they've got to do the earn-out, and then they just want to get out of the company. But can they stay there and become an entrepreneur and and still benefit? You talk about you having some benefit as well personally from that from that exit of YNR. How did you manage to negotiate those shares? If you can tell us anything about that, and, and you know. Yeah,
1: I, yeah. No, I think the first question is—it's a really good question. I mean, honestly, we've spent decades talking about the—you know—what is a good basis to be acquired. I think setting the ground rules, I, you know, sometimes I feel that the cut and thrust of the deal takes slightly higher priority than really finding the right fit. And, you know, finding the right fit also should be, I mean, unless you're in the latter days of your life where you think this is my last hurrah and I'm going to get out, you know, but... I don't know many companies. I mean, maybe you do buy, but in, in the agency business, you're buying people, aren't you? You're buying your assets aren't um, you know widgets? They're the people. So why wouldn't you why why wouldn't you start thinking about mechanisms? And I'll talk a bit about Naked for a minute as well. There were certain mechanisms we built in after we sold the business that allowed us to do things that weren't necessarily accretive to the bottom line, which would have Allowed our multiple to um, you know benefit, but it, 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 but there was a reciprocity in, in in a belief that we wanted to still work at naked beyond the earnout. and actually the, the, the so I'll come to that, but I do think to touch on that point, yes. I mean, some people, why do you I mean, maybe your ambition is to continue just running your own thing in a much larger enterprise. But why the hell do that? You know? I mean if you're going to join this other family a bit like a marriage you're going to join this marriage I'm going to have to go to my in-laws every other sunday and I better really enjoy that rather than you know oh my god do you do I really have to go to the in-laws you know that that kind of scenario you better re- you know you better realize that actually you're going to be in the in-laws and you'll suddenly create new relationships and you'll blossom into new um you know, things that you can do and new connections and all the rest of it. Um, and, that, and, and, and that's my metaphor for saying, think carefully about the value exchange. Um, think carefully, am I here to solve someone else's problem? Because that's the worst way that you can get acquired. Uh, there were many a time we realized we were being quartered in previous businesses. And then, you know, after you really dug a bit deeper, you thought, well, within one year, we're going to be merged with X. To solve X's problem, you know, um, and that's that's a you know, I mean, maybe if you're a firefighter, you might want to do that, but that might not be what your 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 going in proposition is. But I think that understanding that it opens up a lot of avenues of opportunity, and I think if you and you have to lean forward into those acquisitions, every large corporation will probably say. We want you. We're going we're gonna to introduce lots of business to you. We're going to bring lots of technology. We're going to link you to this research group we've got. And then after the acquisition, you sit there and it's like squeaky quiet, nothing, you know. And you reach out to these people and then they, they don't return your calls. And then when you have a meeting with them, you have a lovely meeting, but nothing follows up. You know, you go, and then you kind of send the note to the the big boss, and he'll then write a note reintroducing you, and nothing happens. You know, because it's turf ego and greed, isn't it? I mean, it's turf. You know, I'm going to spend all my time working and it's just what, I, now, I'm, I'm over-exaggerating to make a point. I mean, there are, there are exceptions to it. But, but you've got to lean forward and maybe create those. And if you are an entrepreneur, then you, 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 you find the business plan. You say, I'm going to sit with this guy, and I'm going to give him a reason to want to work with me, not just because I'm a part of the group. Mm-hmm. Why don't we set up a joint venture? Why don't, you know, I'm actually, and by the way, the root of all evil, people generally want to work with you. But it's all about the money, isn't it? It's either it's about the relationship you build with them and it's about the money. And those two things, it's the IQ of the money and the EQ of do, you, you know, is that person gonna turn up for me when the fire is like raging in the in the in the attic? Yeah, I actually think they are gonna turn up for me, as opposed to. Well, I'm only turning out when the money's right, you know. So all of that, I learned a lot of that in the in the wild, And then I applied it in my, when I was an entrepreneur, whenever I had a conversation, I was always thinking of the business solution. Why would someone want to do this? What is that financial incentive aligned to the emotional incentive? The emotional incentive is we can do something better together than you doing it on your own, you know, creatively or strategically, but... There's got to be a win-win for both of us in in, in the negotiation, and I'll do that up front rather than waste tons of time. Um, so yeah, um, I you know that that that's um, I probably moved off is, the original question. Is, but that, <laughs> is
0: that an issue you would say with with the holding company strategy? So having all of those um, separate balance sheets, it kind of sets people against each other internally. Once you you start making acquisitions. Um, and like you said, who's, who's going to invite you in to have a meeting and then start sharing the workout if it means that their balance sheet is going to be a little bit lower at the end of, uh, of the yeah. year and, and um, their be smaller, yeah. et cetera. So in terms of that, and then what, what uh, Sir Martin's doing at the moment with um, this combined yep. balance sheet approach, would you say that that, that is a better way forward for, for agencies to make acquisitions and merge each of those acquisitions in and have a combined balance sheet? I think it's um it
1: depend um so the answer I think is nuanced um, depending on what kind of model you want to create. but well, I would absolutely agree that the turf that exists so increasingly at the very large companies, but I think the the big game hunting, if you're going big game hunting mm. then you really better be aligned across every aspect of the business, including the finances, because you're 100 percent right, that in certain scenarios, you might win a big piece of business, you promised everything, but you've got four P Ls serving that business. Mm-hmm. So obviously, the neutrality I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about the neutrality of your, your, your nose cone consultant objective leaders of that business. Need to have one PNL in order to do what's right for the client or right for that business, as opposed to then having to have four turf wars as to the distribution of the revenues, because mm. everyone's got a vested interest. You know, you've essentially got four—you got you know a butcher, um, a, a, a fishmonger, a grocer—and and when you say, well, what meal do you want? You know the, the butcher's saying meat, 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 <laughs> and the and the fishmonger saying fish, 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 and the and the grocer saying I'm vegetarian, <laughs> you know? and that and that's what can happen as opposed to if you've got the one P L, you can say. None of that we 're all 're we're all, we're, we're a supermarket, and we 're actually serving the right meal for the right person at the right time, so yeah, that analogy so that does work so um, Arthur and obviously uh, uh, you know Maurice was on that journey but but you know Arthur, I think, as far as i I understand, that one publicist concept he 's really driven it right down through the p l that actually was preceded Havas. A great mentor of mine was a wonderful. He was the CEO of Havas maybe a decade ago, Bob Schmetterer. And Bob actually, you know, they were a much smaller global network, but he had one P&L. He could see that stress and strain. And he realized if we're going to grow, we have to grow at the big game end of it while still being able, being able to serve all the all the individual constituents. But again, how do you acquire a business? And then, you know, acquiring the business, especially if you're acquiring it with an earnout. And you've got one P. Well, no, you have separate P&L, aren't you? Mm. So I don't know. But, but also, then MDC, um, which was a much smaller, more boutique y um, holding company, they're now called Stagwell since um, Mark Penn took them over and merged the two enterprises together. But at that time, um, I mean, he had multiple, multiple creative agencies that were fierce rivals with each other, you know, but just bought like, Crispin Porter, 72, and Sonny, Anomaly. And he kind of allowed them to operate independent of each other because, by the way, they were identical to each other. He bought multiple of... But, but um, what, over time, I, I think it eventually... Um, the strategy was shown to be flawed because the analysts and the investors and people that were obviously were saying where's your synergy where are those where are the times that you're turning up pitching against WPP with a 1 MDC and, you know, we did attempt that a few times when I had the Media Kitchen. We attempted it. Rogers Media, which is the huge uh, Canadian telecom conglomerate, you know, we created this team and we call it, I don't know, Team MDC, whatever it was. But we were we were a ragtag bunch of people that all had our own P&Ls. I mean, it worked because we were all entrepreneurial. We liked each other. But, it, it, you know, against, a, you know, a publicist, I can give you, you know, even putting a compensation plan together for a client was going to be you know five sets of f- I mean talk about you know if there was a joke at the comedy club it'd be get five CFOs in a room together <laughs> that would be the opening line but were, a were
0: a they all team. undercutting each other when you were pitching for the same for the same work were, were they under- I, well were again the, it, the rules there
1: well again you have different philosophies depending on you know are you all aligned around the vision you know do you buy that vision are you a mission based holding company or are you a are you a financial um mechanism if you know what i mean is is there a vision so if you buy into the vision i bought into the 1r vision i bought into it hook line and sinker the whole egg this notion of you know we will give you independent and objective advice, solving business problems through whichever medium channel discipline that is appropriate. And, you know, and 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 there was less turf because we were all complementary to each other. There weren't three Y&Rs. Martin had four Y&Rs, didn't he? He had JWT, Ogilvy, and then he bought Y&R. He had YR, and then he had, you know, he had multiple of everything. Um, what was it? And of course, his famous phrase. And and by the way, I admire him immensely. I'm saying that's a different model. I mean, he never called himself a holding company. He called himself a parent company. I remember being lectured. Um, I had a. I, I had my group. Um, in order to train my people and identify who were going to be the CEOs versus the discipline leads, I did a whole global course at London Business School. And then I find out that Martin, I think was vice chairman of London Business School. And I invited him, we'd just kind of done the acquisition. So I invited Martin to speak. And he had a one-hour slot. He came and he spent a half day with us because it was like maybe a month or two after. And he loved media because obviously he created Group M and it's been the big driver of WPP profits. Even Mark Reed in the most recent quarter said, thank God for, you know, he didn't say thank God. He said, you know, Group M's contribution was, was, was a big thumbs up. But, um, but Martin did it. But he lectured me because I said, oh, no, here's our holding company CEO. And the first thing he said, Paul, I'd like to correct you. I'm not a holding company. We are a parent company. There is a big distinction between parent company. But again, he had his philosophy. But I think if you buy the vision and you're all aligned around the vision and you actually buy that, the Y&R during its heyday was incredibly successful with clients because we all bought that idea of the whole egg. And I still hold that today. Today, that was a a very, very informative part of my craft skill, which was this objectivity as to, you know, how do you solve a problem? Well, it's not always going to be, you know, it's not always going to be the butcher that's going to solve your problem. (laughs) You know, you have to think about what meal you're going to create every time you come to the table. Yeah.
0: It's a brilliant analogy. Yeah, I I like it. And before we move off uh, Y&R, because um, obviously it's it's a while ago now and you've done tons of stuff. I don't know if we'll get through everything that you've been involved in. But you were one of the team that took them public. So we've we've kind of gone past that uh, with the acquisition of WPP. But can you roll it back just a little bit and tell us about that part of the journey? what what happened how are you involved and and how did they get um from just like pre ipo to post ipo what was what why what was their strategy at that time
1: um I think it was uh, ambition it was ambition for the group um, there were, there was a there were visionary leaders there who so I, I you know I I must say I'm I'm humbled I was running the media edge part of it which was obviously one of the components but there was um, there were a number of individuals but Mike Dolan comes to mind Mike Dolan was the CFO but Mike wasn't a CFO, he was brought in really to take one up public. So there was Peter who was the CEO, Edvick was the COO. There were obviously unit heads, but Mike Dolan, obviously, it was a massive team effort, and 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 but Mike was the architect of taking them public. Mike actually went on to be, amongst other things, um, CEO of IMG and he sold i m g obviously to william morris to not william morris to um ari emmanuel um he 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 was ceo of Bacardi group subsequently so he's a uh you know an amazing amazing businessman um a, a, you know uh, uh uh a colleague um my role i i think actually mike um was Brilliant at the articulation. All that team was brilliant at the articulation. He had great advisors, all the rest of it. Um, a bringing in Hellman uh, to clean up the balance sheet, take out dead wood. that was important. Um, you know, this was a legacy business that had kind of um, you know been successful but privately successful, so to speak. you know, and un- you know if you're going to go into the public scrutiny, you better you better have your you know, um, your ducks lined up. Um, but one thing that I, I know he was very enamored about what I was involved in was the cash flow. Media, obviously, the revenue we generate is, 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 you know, what builds your P&L. But what flows through a media enterprise are billions and billions of dollars of client business. So, you know, our receivables. So what it, I mean, you know, it was... Um, it was a good contributor to the argument at that point in time, because I think media had started being unbundled, but I don't think the analysts were as aware of the power of what was happening in the, in the media um, Ecosystem that was being created, media services, and I think he was he was very very good, and 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 obviously I was along for the ride. So you know I was one of those new shiny objects in the Y and R sphere that we could talk about. But we also were successful. We when that unbundling happened, we started winning these big consolidated pieces of business. So it was the new business proof point. But um, the other thing that actually a gentleman called John McGarry did. Unlike most agencies, most agencies had allowed themselves to fall into the trap of being analyzed by the analysts based on their accretive new business. Analysts were fanatical about what was your new, new business number. Who were the, which holding company? And they still do it. I'm sure you see it, Annie. Which holding company has won more business in the last quarter? It was their way of actually saying, we went to the market and we said, okay, across our top 20 clients... There is over a billion dollar of revenue that is that resides in other holding companies. And by the way, the largest amount of that billion dollars was at WPP because we shared so much business. So we said our first priority is to grow our existing clients and make that a new benchmark. So we would present to the analysts how successful we were with new business, new new business, but we also said, we're actually going to show you how for clients A, B, C, D, E, over the last quarter, we've increased. We've now got Landor working on them. The Media Edge has now won the assignment for blah, 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 blah. So you get, and that was, you know, that was, uh, uh, so those were aspects. So we were working in this cross matrix. So we did have separate P&Ls but we were all aligned because we weren't competing with each other. We were complementary to each other. At least that was one good thing. But there was this unbelievable guy called John McGarry who went on to create McGarry Bowen, which he sold, by the way, I think for an uncapped, uncapped, um, uh, Dentsu, yep. an absolute visionary. He was never the CEO of y r but he was one of the, you know, one of the greats at y And he was the guy who ran the clients. He was the guy and we created by the way client PL so there was a tension I mean there were some bonker conversations you'd have two people in in like an office one was head of a global piece of business and the other was head of that geography and you kind of didn't know who was more powerful than the other. You know, it was like one, you know, the the guy running the PNL for the client might have actually had a bigger PL than than the girl who was running the, um, you know, the office. So there were definitely some wants in that system. But generally speaking, so that explains a little bit about that. I mean, you know, and I'm sure those that still exists within IPG. I'm sure you know Philippe has got that same issue at, at IPG. They have separate PNLs. Maybe one publicist is moving to that one P&L, but you're still going to have to fight for your, I need this piece of research. Who's going to adjudicate? Is everything going to end up at, 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 at Arthur's table? And by the way, Martin was like that. Martin, it was crazy. My head was on fire. We do the acquisition, and then suddenly there's this email that said, any hire, any hire above $100,000 or something like that has to have the CFO of WPP and Martin's approval. I mean, it was like, this is a company that had like, I don't know, 150,000 people. It was like... So, uh, well, Martin is, Martin's like that. He, yeah. you know, I think he realized 40% of the emails would never get sent, so he would save himself a ton of money straight off the bat. You know? Yeah. <laughs>
0: So, yeah, very, very involved in, into the micro details. So it sounds like there was a lot of um, chefs in that kitchen, which may, sort of segues us into the next section of your life, potentially. Um, was that why you called the next business the Media Kitchen and you were head chef, uh, finally get to be head chef after all those other chefs <laughs> meddling with the recipes?
1: And, uh, actually, Andy, I'll post-rationalise it and I'll agree with you. No, I, it, was, it was a funky name. I think, yeah, there were the analogies. Um, I've used them a little earlier in this interview, uh, you know, and, and it created a bit of fun. I, I mean, certainly something I've tried to embrace is not taking myself too seriously. And when you run a company, when when you're part of a company, uh, certainly running the Americas, being the, the founder of the Americas business of Naked, if you've got a business called Naked Communications, you imagine the guffaws and laughs you got when you turn up at, you know, some corporate headquarters in Dallas and, you know, oh, the naked people are here to see you, you know, <laughs> from reception. But the Media Kitchen, yeah, it was a lovely little chapter. And I zanked to the zig. So what I realized was that media was becoming all about size and clout and the cost. I could realize that actually creativity in media was something that was blossoming, but it was being dampened by this, you know, scale and size. So I thought, look, I got a sense that... Um, there was an opportunity to be the most creative media enterprise, and I think that's so again, positioning um, do what you do really well. Um, that made me sacrifice strategy a sacrifice as well. So I actually created a actually created a partnership with Horizon, Bill Koningsberg, way back in the day. So on my broadcast buying, I said uh, Bill and I shared uh, NBC as a client, and he and I had a chat, and I said, well Actually, if I'm going to try and push upstream towards strategy and creativity in media, you know, this is a very expensive, you know, I might know. can I create a, you know, can, I mean, we didn't create a joint venture. I said, would you want to be my partner and handle my broadcast buying for me? And um, we reached an agreement and we had a strategy. So I, I kind of had the best of both worlds. I had this big independent who powered some of my executional side of the business? But I was able to then focus more. And we were quite, we were quite successful at winning then business based on strategic thinking rather than our clout and how much we were gonna ch- you know, how much we were gonna pay for the media. You know, there was a big emphasis. You know, you might win a pitch because you'd bid 3% lower on your CPMs, and I'm going. But if you're targeting the wrong people, you could be, it could be 25% less efficient. I mean, today in a data-driven world, but that's why actually even that philosophy today within Canvas is very prescient. I'm saying, look, it's the value, not the price. And, and what is that value in an atomized media world? How are we, what are the attribution? What is the measurement we're using? How are we uh, we're, we're doing that? Anyway, so um, that was a lovely successful. We sold to MDC. Yeah, mid earn out. Um, the can, guys can you, from can London. Can you Tell us anything
0: about that deal at all? Can, can you tell us what it looked like? I know it's obviously it's all probably. Well, yeah. it was it was,
1: yeah. And I was, I yeah, I, um, it was it was kind of simple, stupid. I mean, um, Miles Nadal was running MDC. He was prepared to pay a little bit of a premium compared with the holding companies. He had a very good. Um, you know, you, you could see the proof point. Um, um Chuck Porter, who was the chairman of Crispin Porter, was 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 his best advocate because Chuck was the was his conciliary, so to speak, and Chuck could speak to the independents. Chuck could say, I can firsthand tell you this is the experience Crispin Porter have had. We've had nothing other than support, we've had very little meddling. Um, and but we've had support when we, we wanted to expand, when we wanted to move our headquarters to Boulder, Colorado, we, we, you know, we got it, we did it. And so long as we keep growing. And I think it was in that, you know, highly acquisitive, it was accretive acquisitions. So, of course, what happens is then, you know, when, when a bubble bursts, then everyone looks at your organic, everyone then looks at your debt, everyone looks at, I mean, he was highly leveraged. Um, As we all know, MDC was. um, And it was quite accretive because of the acquisitions. He was, even though he was, but he was prepared. It it, it, it was simple stupid, you know. I guess we bought that argument. I liked it because um, the media kitchen was, um, he was mainly creative agencies. He had digital agencies. He had a few other experiential agencies, but he didn't have a media agency. But the problem again occurs when you're doing an earnout. I, I started becoming the you know entrepreneur, so I'm in an earn-out. I'm the entrepreneur. I'm trying to work with Crispin Porter. I, I had a big relationship with Kershbaum Bond. I should state that really, when we sold, we sold Kirschenbaum alongside the Media Kitchen and some other assets like Dot Glue and 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 Lime. You know, a little a little group sold, so it wasn't a sale by itself. But um, then I was hamstrung because, of course. Um, I wanted to liberate the media kitchen into maybe being MDC's media enterprise, but I was trapped in a in a in a, in, a, in an acquisition. So it meant that you know, how did you? So when I I left Mid Earnout. Because there was, not because of that, I wasn't unhappy. There was just another itch to scratch. And this shows being an entrepreneur, you're prepared to leave money off the table, on the table or off the table, whichever way you look at it. And I moved to Naked because I felt like Naked was this new model. And it was, it was a passion project. But I, I, I thought that we could have more influence, more impact. And the time was right. So I couldn't wait till the end of the year now because I thought the the ship would have left. Not not just the naked ship, that moment in time where we felt like there was a need for this thing called communication planning, this need for this objective nose cone that could... Work with any client and any holding company, and and turbocharge that um, integration. So I, I I've jumped another chapter into the naked one, but but essentially, you know, I gave you a little bit of an insight, I guess, into, and, and Miles was very generous. I think when I resigned, he said, "Well, how do we reconstruct your deal?" But it was a bit late. You know, we should have thought about that at the beginning. You know, the, the beginning should have been.
0: how early did you I, leave in your air now? What was that? How early did you leave in that earnout? now?
1: I think almost halfway through. Yeah, it was so funny. I just recently, um, I kept, I, I have a sentimentality. So I still have WPP stock from the days. I still have IPG stock from when IPG hired me. And I still had MDC stock. And just recently, I swapped swapped it to stagwell. And I remember being in a car going up to, you know, at Cannes and 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 there were a couple of us in the car. And, and and Mark Penn was in the car. Obviously Mark's running MDC now. And he was kind of he 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 obviously must have known I've kind of bumped into him over the years, you know, when he was at Microsoft or when he actually he ran Bertha Marstella um in a different chapter. And and he was kind of curious. He said You were the founder of Media Kitchen, weren't you? And he was asking, well, did you leave? And it was really funny because, and I said, and all I reported to him is, I've still got some shares, so fucking get that strategy right. I hope the stag well, MDC thing. So it's quite funny. The the, the share price has been going back up again. I think in MDC, I just forgot about them. But yeah, I did leave. Um, I mean, to be fair, I was never going to retire on that the, the the media kitchen wasn't large enough in that acquisition to to let me walk off into the sunset. Um but um no I, and and to be fair, I've always felt that you have to do what's right for you personally rather than you know, and there was and there was an exciting new chapter, there was a new frontier. I'm a, I'm a good builder, to be fair. I'm a good builder, like maintainer. Main
0: you like the startup stage of things, and can you can you tell us anything about? I mean, you don't need to give us numbers. You didn't. You said it didn't make you rich, but but could you tell us anything about the the multiples that were? I, I wish I famous? could remember. It's so funny. I think. um
1: Well, it was always. I, it's probably similar ranges. I, I I'm actually trying to remember it, and God forbid someone. Uh, so. so Naked, we got a bigger multiple because Photon wanted us and really saw us as a nose cone to their international expansion, which I can very briefly talk about. I think it might have been in the six to eight range. (laughs) You know, back in the day. That that, that sound, Andy, I'm asking you, did we get a good deal back in? That would have been in about... You'd have to tell uh, me what
0: your revenues were, but I mean, yeah, six to eight—it's the top end. So you got you got a good a good multiple by the sounds. I mean, you yeah, just and, and he was always prepared to pay more. He definitely paid more. Um,
1: and then more recently, I won't I won't name it, but um, I was on the board of a digital agency uh, prior to doing Canvas. Um, it was a great little advisory board directorship, and we helped guide. I mean, it was a brilliant business. Uh, help guide them bought um, some assets, uh, particularly geographic assets, and then sold, and all the holding companies offered. And, of course, there were all the new entrants. So it was fascinating being an advisor, board director, Mm -hmm. and IBM finally buying the business, and actually full cash offer. They said, the whole lock, stock, and barrel, no earn-out, because we want you to be our engine... We've got, like, tons of clients here. IBM consulting IBM What was,
0: it, what was the size of our business? Yeah, how big, roughly, um, revenue? I think, if I remember, it was, like, 100 million-ish revenue. All right. so they just, IBM just came along and snapped the whole thing up with cash. Oh, yeah, and, and there was a
1: full process, but it was kind of interesting because, you know, the, 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 the traditional, you know, they were different models, weren't they? And yeah. I think there was also a, another one of the consultancy technology groups put an offer in that actually, and theirs was even, theirs was even higher, but it had earnouts attached to it. So it could have been much higher. But I think the team believed that the IBM people, philosophy, best fit. And I think there was this vision from IBM, which was, we're buying you because... We love what you do, and we want to liberate you into our environment, as opposed to doing that in three or four years' time. So it goes back to that oh no. So, So pretty much, I mean, again, forgive if, if anyone's listening... Uh, <laughs> Who 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 knew more about that deal than me? Forgive me, and I haven't named any names, so uh, you know to protect the innocent. But I think you get what I mean. But it was it was fascinating when we went through that process because um, people we've name checked earlier from the holding companies were obviously courting this business, but their model was very. I mean, it hadn't changed for decades. It was still the same kind of earnout with the same kind of multiple.
0: Right. Um, yeah, it hasn't, it hasn't really changed over the years. Um, yeah, yeah, but obviously yeah. The, the, the the big thing is now this this um, this joint P and L, and I think a lot of agency owners that, are, that are, uh, have done some M and A are now thinking, do we do we switch to this? Because obviously they can see that there are some uh, problems with having separate P and Ls and having yeah. P internally. So, so, do we just merge everything in? from now on. So it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating uh, subject anyway. Uh, but I want to get right up to date now. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, where you are at Canvas, just briefly, because what I really want to get from you as well is any advice for agency CEOs that uh, are listening to this podcast? Or yeah, what?
1: no, I've loved this next chapter. It's been an amazing, amazing chapter. I think um, what I again identified is that the media was going to go through yet another wave of change. So not only you had the digital, re- you had the unbundled revolution, you had obviously the digital revolution. Everything's digital now. So it wasn't digital versus, versus. It's, it's, it's everything is digital now. Mm-hmm. You had the data revolution. And I think it's, it, you know, and we're seeing it. We've seen it under COVID, obviously. But yes, so six years ago, we launched Canvas, Six over six years ago. And I'm very, very proud of the team that we've built. Um, Again, we were a scaled startup. We said we wanted to do it at scale. So we had some founder clients, amazing. So um, very much supported by Inocean, uh, worldwide, um, who wanted a media enterprise. Um, We were able to birth with the Hyundai, Kia, and Genesis, actually. Genesis came along as an extra prize for us because, you know, the decision was taken to launch it as a separate luxury brand out of the Hyundai. Um, So yeah, we did that. So really the top, um, we've grown to be nearly 500 people now. We've got six locations in the US, dual headquartered New York and um, Los Angeles. We've grown with best-in-breed clients, we've got Heineken Group, we've got MGM UAR, so the the theatrical division, there, you know, amazing client. We've got uh, we've had package goods, we've got financial services, so we've really expanded across, but also geographically, we've got offices in Chicago, Dallas, Atlanta, and a small little office up in Denver, and I think it, it has allowed us to have um what I call a perspective outside of the bubble. I think a lot of agencies are, you know, their headquarters are in New York, and you 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 look at the world through, you know, New York eyes. I've always felt like Silicon Valley couldn't get out of their own way when I've been working with Silicon Valley, you know, because the world was that bubble of San Francisco or not even of Palo Alto or Mountain View. I've worked with all those technology companies, and I think that this country is as complicated as Europe. I mean, we, we you know... And by the way, with multiple languages, I used to say we're we're one huge um geography divided by one common language. That used to be Churchill's phrase about the Britain and, and America, but you could say that. But now, you know, if if you're in um uh you know c- certain counties in in Florida and Miami, you know, Spanish is the first language. And and you but the geography and the disposition of people living in different it's 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 a you know, and 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 that's a beautiful challenge. So, canvases, I think, embrace that idea of a one canvas. M- my Atlanta office is as, as important as my Chicago office. Oh, I should have said one of my clients is McDonald's. We had all with multicultural strategy, particularly Hispanic strategy. I'm so proud of that because you know that is again the future of this America is going to be you know how diverse we're, we we are getting every day. But um, over the six years. Um, Top and bottom line growth, even through COVID, didn't lay anyone off, didn't furlough. Had the, you know, the most stressful time ever. Didn't know what was going to happen literally tomorrow. So it's you know I don't want to say it was done with ease, but we made a commitment to staff that that would be the last thing. And the reciprocity was we won business. We managed to give the clients that needed the relief, the relief. And, and we got rewarded back, I think, it, you know, with some reciprocity back. But yes, so, you know, it's it's been a... But again, some people said, Paul, you've gone back to being media again after Naked, which was more a consultancy-like uh, uh, function, you know, that more that nose code. But I think we have that same philosophy at the front end of what we do. We try and solve business problems, but we now have the execution alarms across you know, all the disciplines to be able to, um, you know, serve clients. And ultimately, I think it's also the context. I mean, I think actually even COVID has just created a completely new context. I mean, I don't need to tell you your behaviors. My behaviors have changed in the way that we consume media, even in in, in a kind of, when I say post-COVID, in a kind of semi-post-COVID world, we're doing things in a very different way. I mean, I was at Disney. Disney had a big um, function last night at the Natural History Museum. And, you know, and actually, when you look at the Disney assets, they're, 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 they're you know, they're Marvel, they're Hulu, they're <laughs> as much as it's ABC. But maybe a decade ago, the, the 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 big shiny objects in their treasure trove were ABC. And I mean, ESPN is still, but ESPN is as much a streaming product now um, as it is, um, you know. And of course, if you love sport, then, you know, which I do, I've got like more subscriptions to more goddamn streaming services in order to see esoteric sports or different football leagues or, you know, whatever it is. Anyway, so you know what I mean. But it's an exciting time to be in media still, um, you know, championing that and, and hopefully... We have less of the legacies. What I often say is we were built for the future, not we're retrofitting the past. Because right. again, I think a lot of the older companies we compete with are trying to change the, you know, the, the, the airplane engines while the, while the plane's in flight. Whereas I feel like we have an attitude which you know, is summed up by welcome to Canvas, make yourself uncomfortable. That is our mission. In other words, it's like everyone, I mean, we're not trying to physically make people uncomfortable, but you have to embrace that notion of living outside your comfort zone in order to solve problems in an environment that's moving at lightning speed and with change, you know, so yeah, enjoying it. It's, it's, and a great, great group of partners, shareholders, Um, So I think that's been testament to why we've been able to grow is that, yes, we were the challenger, but it's all about the people. It's just an amazing group of of, of partners that have come together. There are the, the, you know, they say they were... We call them, you know, the the restless optimists. They were restless for something else when they worked in the holding companies, but they were optimistic about that future. They weren't trying to leave because the, the old model was broken. They left because maybe there's a new model that that can go forward. Um, so yeah, and I, I know we're probably running out of time. You had a couple more questions.
0: But, well, yeah. So yeah, I was just about I was just about to say so just uh, one one or two more questions, but the final one really is um <clears throat> so I'd like to get some advice from you. If you have one, just one piece of advice, Paul. So we have CEOs from up-and-coming agencies that listen to this podcast, and they would love to get in the room with you and ask you this question. So what is that one piece of advice that you would give a, an agency owner, a CEO of an agency who's who's trying to grow their business? It's a great question. And,
1: and obviously, there's always a temptation to have a list of these things. The top two, though. I think first, I think first, be true to yourself. I think that is the first piece of advice. Really dig deep, and when yourself—I don't mean selfishly. I mean, obviously, you may be the major shareholder, but obviously, when I say be true to yourself, it could be be true to that collective management. That you know, why are you doing this versus how and what? Yeah, it's it's the classic why question. Why do I want to do this? I mean, of course, there can be mixed. And, and maybe you're not fully aligned because you could be the the majority owner and you ultimately want to de-risk, you know, or you want to walk off into the sunset. But, you know, walking off into the sunset means that you better be aligned with your partners who are going to want to take over and that they're going to... And I think being true to yourself, it also says dig deep, you know, um, have you got the appetite to be the entrepreneur if you're going to join that group? And And that doesn't... But you could you can have that conversation up front, you know. No, I'm really I'm really good at what I do, and I don't want to do any of that other nonsense. And I I, I respect um, people that do that. You know, they're being true to themselves. Maybe they're saying this is my strength. I don't think we do enough. I have an amazing coach advisor um, for me and my executive team. He happens to be the he happens to be the ex CEO of IPG. Um, so he knows a thing or two. His name's David Bell, one of the most amazing men. He he bought our agency back. I've never worked for him. I worked for him when I was describing my early career in the UK. So he actually bought our agency back. But anyway, and and we've all done a thing called Clifton Strengths. So we kind of you know we all intuitively know what we what our strengths are. We're all trying to play to our strengths, but we come together as a team much stronger knowing what I'm good at and what you're not good at. But also we have a vision and a mission Mm. uh, that I think we all buy into um, but all contribute different things. So be true to yourself means yourself and your partners and really have that discussion because once you get into the roadshow or that pre-prep, it can get a bit wonky, you know, you you need to know what your North Star is throughout that entire process, or even entering into that process, having the conversation with you, Andy, please come in and advise us, you know, before, you know, we want to go, are we ready? What might be the EQ parts to the IQ? You know, I'm sure if you've got a good healthy business, you can sell at a good multiple. But, you know, uh, finding the right, right partner, finding alignment Again, with, with, with a larger enterprise, most most likely is, is again, a really important. So I, I think it's, it's that simple. I think that be true to yourself. Yeah,
0: yeah That's brilliant. a brilliant bit of advice. And um, also quite interesting that you guys have got coaches as well. At the level that you, you're at, it's really interesting to, to know that you've got somebody that's got your back, that you can ask for advice and all of that sort of thing as well. I think, um, yeah. I think there's a lot of people that don't know whether they should go and ask for help. Um, like expert professional health in in that way um so that's good to know it's a brilliant insight as well to know that you you have that um and then just finally before we we see if there's any questions for you so um how do how do people who are listening to this podcast now get in touch with Paul Wilmington and how can we follow what you're doing and what you're up to do you have social media channels or do you update anything like a blog or
1: yeah no that's a good question um so a few things that I've been doing. Um, so go to Canvas Worldwide. Um, if you just put Canvas Worldwide in any search engine, you'll get to our our website. Um and we do have some rich content on there. Um, I do a little vidcast series called um uh The Disruptors, and um I'm lucky enough to, you know, have some guests that I've either worked on people writing books. So I'm a Columbia, I'm a senior um, fellow at Columbia University, but I worked, this was a colleague of mine that we worked on a storytelling program at Columbia, and he's written a book. Uh, This is just recently, Out the Sea We Swim In, uh, How Stories Work in a Data-Driven World. It's a really good book, um, I didn't write it, so I'm not, uh, <laughs> but but there are some things, there are some tricks. So um, Frank, for example, is just one of my guests. Uh, another guest of mine uh, is a personal friend, uh, top Deloitte consultant. Uh, that He's written a book, The Future of Work, which I think we're all thinking about. Mm-hmm. A really brilliant book, a bestseller in the B2B space. Um, his name's Jeff Schwartz. I just uh, actually interviewed Mandy Gilbert, who... Is a dear friend of mine. We've sit on a number of boards. She's a uh she's written a book, Just Do It. It's about entrepreneurship. Um, and she is a living proof of being an entrepreneur. She's a tech investor and various other things. So no, I've got a little content series there. Um, and we push, you know, of course, we're pushing out points of view and 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 um or and and I I actually um I really I'm blessed. Like I, I I think LinkedIn is you're blessed and cursed. I mean, I'm kind of cursed because obviously, when I speak at a conference, you know, suddenly my my LinkedIn messages go a bit bonkers, and of course, that's the only shame about the pollution of just obviously unsolicited. But I post almost everything up there. I I try and you know do as much through that as being one of the one of the portals, Um, because really, I'm in the B two B market, you know. And yes, you know, I've got. You know some social media feeds and things like that, but um, but yeah, LinkedIn and our website are good places to go to. You can either go to Canvas Worldwide or you can go to uh, Paul Wilmington, You know, and um, yeah, and and you know, it reasonably updated. You know, we're not we're not talking about you know the latest TikTok influencer that that, that blew up yesterday, but maybe a, a more substantive topic might be you know privacy. You know, Apple's latest you know, um, uh, uh, moves, you know, big mergers, um, what could be the implication to marketing? And then, you know, the disruptors is just meant to be, you know, that notion of I try and get people on who live the life outside their comfort zone. And it's something I try and apply. So I'm trying to actually, the disruptors is meant to be that, you know, that notion. I always ask the question. So what, what, you know, how do you get outside your comfort zone every day, you know, or, or you know, what's your version of that? And I get some brilliant answers. So I, I, I hope one day to write my book. Everyone always has a, you know, is a, and it will, it will probably be, make yourself uncomfortable. It'll be cool. I've been collecting stories, not just, in, in, in our world, but it's in every world, you know, inspirational stories where people got outside their comfort zone and how we can maybe codify that, you know, to some degree. What does it, make, what does it mean to get outside your comfort zone? You know, and I'm sure coaches have done that, but, you know, I'll have my little version of that maybe one perfect, day.
0: Perfect. So they can find you, um, find you on LinkedIn. They should go to Canvas Worldwide and check out your vidcasts and don't spam you don't spam you at all we've run out of time actually Paul so unfortunately um, the floor isn't open for anybody else to ask you any more questions but that's fantastic so if you've listened to this podcast and you've enjoyed it make sure you get hold of Paul I'm sure he will ask you questions and there's lots of scope there I guess for more business deals to be done so anybody looking to do a JV or get into some of the um, clients that you represent I'm sure they they will get in touch so like and follow uh, on the podcast and on uh, YouTube And uh, I'll see you at the next one. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thanks.